Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. You may have heard the famous saying, Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. So said uh, playwright William Congreve in 1697 in a play called The Morning Bride, about a woman who was left stranded there at the altar. Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I want to propose that we today maybe think about that a little differently. Instead of hell hath no fury like a woman or like anything else, and let's just say hell hath no fury. Hell hath no fury. Fury, as if hell were some self-fueled fire with its own fury, its own wrath, its own danger, its own fear. Hell has none of those things in and of itself. No, we should say as Christians, hell hath no fury apart from the wrath of Almighty God. It is God's wrath and God's burning anger against sin that makes hell, hell. And without the wrath of God, and without the anger of God at sin, and without the active judgment of sinners in hell, there would be no such thing as hell. Hell hath no fury in and of itself. Hell hath only the fury and the wrath of Almighty God. The wrath of God is not the most popular subject, self-admittedly, even within the church of God. But we must see it in Scripture. We must embrace it as biblical Christians. One pastor said, The doctrine of the wrath of God, the doctrine of hell, is the black backdrop against which the diamond of the gospel shines all the more. We must understand the wrath of God. We must understand the reality of hell, the reality of God's punishment against sin. But I don't think there's any wonder why we want to dismiss the wrath of God. I don't think there's any wonder why many churches shy away from the preaching of the wrath of God or the anger of God towards sin or especially the doctrine of hell or even sin. The concept of the wrath and anger of God, the condemnation that God owes towards sinners, forces us as Christians and anyone listening, it forces us to deal with the concept of sin. And we have no place for that anymore. Sadly, even within many churches, we don't have a place for that anymore. You can hear, even in much of contemporary so-called Christian music, the downgrade of our idea of sin and the downgrade of our idea against our, our offense against a holy God where sin and transgressions are redefined and sort of rephrased simply to mistakes, some sort of illness, a sickness, to which we are simply the victims. And you can sort of hear this swap where sin becomes not so much something that I am guilty of perpetrating against God, but something I'm merely the victim of. 
And so we set ourselves up as observers of God's judgment on them and something else, but certainly not us. And even within the church, words like reproof, correction, discipline, judgment seem to be completely missing from many pulpits. But our passage this morning confronts us with the sobering reality of the wrath of God. Look with me at Romans 1 beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Pastor Matt has already prayed for us. I wonder if I could pray once more before we continue. God, our Father, this is your inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through your servant Paul. And this morning you are speaking to us by that same Holy Spirit. God, confront us today in the wickedness of the culture that surrounds us the wickedness that is in our own hearts. Confront us with the truth of your word, and like a sword, may it cut us down today. May it cut us down so that we might find healing and mercy in Jesus. It's in his name we pray and ask. Amen. Number one today, we see no excuse Verse 18 begins with the word for. And for tells us we're coming from somewhere. For the wrath of God is revealed. Where are we coming from? We're coming from verse 17. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
from faith forth faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's where we're coming from. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, and we need the righteousness of God to be revealed in the gospel because, verse 18, the wrath of God is also being revealed from heaven. Why do the righteous need to live by faith? Why do we need righteousness? Why must we need the gospel? Because the wrath of God is revealed. There's the answer. God's righteousness is revealed in the giving of his gospel because his wrath is also being revealed from heaven. The Bible says, verse 18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I want you to notice the origin of this wrath. This wrath is from heaven, from God himself. It is not some external part of God. It is not some tool that God has to rouse up from somewhere else, from the devil or from the demons or from any man. It is the wrath of God from God from heaven. Just as much as the gospel, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, just as much as the gospel is God's gospel that he has revealed, so too this wrath is God's wrath that he has revealed. Just as the gospel is revealed, so is this wrath now revealed. His holy, righteous indignation against sin. That word wrath there is just simply the word anger. And there are several words that we could have used here, Paul could have used, to say anger or wrath or or condemnation, whatever he wanted to choose. One such notion of anger and wrath is is more of an outburst, a lack of self-control when the, the thermostat, as it were, reaches that boiling point and it just busts. That is not the word that Paul uses here because this is not a lack of self-control on God's part. This is not a lack of control on behalf of God in his wrath. No, this word means an abiding condition of anger. This is an eternal part of who God is in his holiness and his righteousness and his purity. It is not some extra part. It is not some hidden thing in God It is one of his perfections, one of his attributes that flows from his holiness. And it is in full accord with his holiness and his righteousness. Frank Tillman, one of the commentators I read, said, God's wrath is not separate from his righteousness. It is an expression of his righteousness. And so often we try to separate these pieces of God, love and mercy and grace, from the wrath and the anger and the condemnation. But we can't do that because all those are who God is in his fullness and his perfection every place at every time. And so this holy wrath and anger towards sin flows from his righteousness. It is not something different than his righteousness. This is not a whim on God's part. It's not arbitrary on God's part. It is part of who he is. It is revealed, Paul says in verse 18. Interesting thing about the tense that Paul chooses to use here, it's present and it's ongoing. Sometimes we think of the wrath of God and the judgment and the condemnation of God merely in future terms. The judgment is coming. The wrath of God is coming one day on that last day. And that's true. But there's an aspect of the wrath and the judgment of God that we are experiencing right now in that what theologians call already not yet mentality. We are in that reality right now and it will come in its fullness one day. The wrath and the judgment of God. It will come. It is coming. 
but it is being revealed even right now. I think it's interesting that in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus describes unbelievers as having the wrath of God already abiding on them. In that present ongoing tense, those who reject Jesus, those who refuse to come to Jesus, not just one day when Jesus returns, but even right now are abiding under the wrath of God. God's wrath is revealed in judgment that day when he returns, but also right now. And Paul says this is a judgment on ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. These are overlapping umbrella terms that describe all kinds of sin. Remember when we talked about the Ten Commandments and the two tables of the law, those that relate to God and those that relate to men. This covers all of that. All sin, all unrighteousness, all godlessness is included here. And here's where we start to stop our ears. Maybe you're tempted to stop your ears this morning. Here's where so many start to want to redefine sin or to soften the concept of sin or to loosen the idea of God's wrath. And verse 18 predicts that, doesn't it? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men because men, it says, in their unrighteousness, what does it say at the end of verse 18? Suppress the truth. Sin is not some simple condition, a sickness, an illness, a weakness in which we find ourselves. We are not merely the victims in a situation where the cards are stacked against us and we can't help but do otherwise. No, Paul is very clear. We did this. It is our ungodliness and our unrighteousness in which we, Paul says, actively presently suppress the truth of God. What God has revealed in his gospel, the gospel about his son, the gospel of the power of his Holy Spirit, that gospel, that good news that is his righteousness, verse 17, revealed from heaven, we have suppressed that. We stifle that. And Paul says something rather shocking in verses 19 through 20. Verse 19, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Listen to me. At some level, on some level, everyone knows the truth of God. Because it is plain, Paul says, in the things that have been made. All around us is the evidence. We read it this morning in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above declares his handiworks. Verse 2, day to day pours forth speech. And night to night bears forth utterance, creation itself, the stars, the sky, all the things we sang at about in the, in the How Great Thou Art, that second verse about the woods and the mountains and the birds and all those things that we just take for granted. They are a revelation of God's glory, Paul says, his divine nature, his invisible attributes. They are all revealed there in the clear, ongoing, 
obvious manifestation of who he is. So much so, Paul says in verse 21, for although they knew God, he's right there all along. Man, made in God's image, made after God's likeness, that divine nature, that divine thumbprint, fingerprint is there in each of us. Believers and unbelievers, made in the image of God, it's there. But it is suppressed actively, intentionally, personally, because of your sin and my sin, we suppress and stifle that truth of God that is so clear. And we have every reason to. Karl Marx, the father of modern communism, once said about people that believe in God, that a belief in God or religion is the opium of the people. In other words, we invented religion, we invented God, we invented heaven, so to make ourselves feel better with the concept of death and life after death. Arnold Schwarzenegger said something uh, very like to that here recently, didn't he? When he said heaven is a fantasy. I think of the Beatles song, imagine there's no heaven, imagine there's no hell, it's easy if you try. Imagine all the people. We want, actually, the concept of no God. And so contrary to what Karl Marx said, that religion is the opium of the people, a Polish-American poet named Czeslaw Miłosz said this, the true opium of the people is a belief in nothingness after death, the huge solace of thinking that our betrayals, our greed, cowardice, murders, that we're not going to be judged. People prefer nothing to religion in order to pretend that they don't know what their hands are doing. Karl Marx said said we invented religion to give ourselves a little boost of hope in life. But if you really think about it, the concept of a God and a judge and a lawgiver is no opiate at all. It confronts us in our sin and it forces us to deal with the concept that we will be held accountable. There will be a day of judgment for the world. There will be a day in which the books are opened and our works are laid bare before us. And there will be a day when God in righteousness judges the living and the dead by the perfect judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And although the world around us would like to find any and every reason not to believe that, maybe even you in this room today are trying to find every reason not to believe that. It is the truth of Scripture. Take it or leave it. Paul says God is not to blame. Creation is not to blame. Only we are to blame for our suppression of the truth. The last part of verse 20 told us, We are without excuse. It's plain. It's there for everyone to see. But in our sin, we stifle, we suppress, we hide. With the result in verse 21, 
Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Do you see what happened as a result of our suppression of the truth and our sin? What happens? Our thinking becomes futile. Literally, our minds become empty. Our thoughts mean nothing. And our hearts are darkened further in our sin. In that suppression of the truth of God that he has revealed in all of nature and all around us, and us especially here today with his word open before us, in our suppression of that truth, we subject ourselves to nothingness and darkness. We are so in love with our own thoughts, our own opinions, that we plunge ourselves deeper and deeper into foolishness. And the irony of it comes in verse 22. All of this while claiming to be wise. While puffing up our own heads with knowledge and every philosophy and every worldview and every argument against the existence of God and every argument for our self-made idols, Paul says we're just plunging ourselves deeper and deeper into foolishness and stupidity even while we're claiming to be wise. And Paul says in verse 23, here's the climax of this foolishness. This foolish exchange, and we circle and underline that word exchange. We're going to see it several times. Repeated theme for Paul. There's an exchange that is made. Not for something greater or better. Paul says in verse 23, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and birds and animals and creeping things. I wonder if you, you see in that language echoes of Genesis Paul is intentionally taking us back to the Garden of Eden. He's taking us back to the fall. Taking us back to the foolishness of Adam and Eve. He reminded us that God has revealed himself in creation. Man made in his image, Genesis chapter 1. He reminds us of God who has made all these things. Notice Paul's use of the terms birds and animals and creeping things. That goes back to the language God uses in Genesis But instead of worshiping God in whose image we are, we would rather craft gods after our own image. All while, verse 22, claiming to be wise. And wasn't that the temptation that Eve faced? When she saw the fruit, didn't it look appealing so as to make one wise? And so Paul is taking us back to our first parents and that first exchange of the immortal God For the foolishness of sin and idolatry. And Eve made that exchange. And Adam made that exchange. And every day since then, we have all been making that same exchange. Calvin said it this way. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. That's our default The default setting of mankind and sin is just to pump out one idol after another, after another, after another. And you might be here this morning saying, well, wait a minute. I think I'm an atheist. I think I'm an agnostic. I don't worship anything. Here's the news for you this morning. Everyone worships something. Everyone in this room worships something. It might be another religion. It might be some other philosophy or worldview. Some will literally bow down before images carved into wood or stone or metal of men and animals or birds or something in nature. But there are other idols, aren't there? 
There are idols of wealth, personality, celebrity, notoriety, fame. You can make an idol out of your family. You can make an idol out of your career. You can make an idol out of your lusts. And so humanity finds itself facing the reality of God's certain wrath, not because, listen, of a simple weakness or just a missing link in the chain or a chink in the armor at which God simply winks and lets us pass on through. We face the certainty of God's wrath because we have willfully, actively, and intentionally rebelled against God against his law, against his revelation in the gospel. And the judgment on that rejection of his revelation in the gospel is the revelation then of his wrath. And while we might be able to suppress the one truth in the gospel, we will never be able to ultimately suppress the reality of the wrath of God because it is being revealed even as we speak and it will come one day in its fullness. Number two this morning, God gave up. What an awful, terrifying prospect. But I want you to see how Paul uses this. He uses it three times in this passage. In verse 24, look at that. God gave them up. In verse 26, God gave them up. And down in verse 28, God gave them up. Is reminiscent of Old Testament language wherein God would hand over the people of Israel to her enemies to be judged. God said, you want the idols? You want the idols of the nations around you? You want to spoil yourselves with their women and their land and their gods? Be my guest. And God hands them over time and time again to those enemies. Think about the horror the people of Israel faced in the wilderness when God said, okay, you've committed this idolatry with the golden calf. You go on into the promised land. I'll send my angel with you, but I'm not going. I mean, the horrifying prospect that was for Israel that made them repent and turn back to God and plead with his presence to stay with them. Think of the horror that was faced by Israel and Judah time and time again as God would remove his hand and let the judgment come down upon them. This is that judgment. That God withdraws his restraining hand and he hands men and women over to do as they wish. And you would think this morning, great, I can do what I want. That's good. Let's have a party. Let's have a celebration. God lets us do what we want. But I know you know as well as I do the horrors of that kind of judgment when God simply gives wicked men and women what they want. Verse 24, Paul says this is the case. God gave them up and the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He uses language of lust and impurities and sensuality and the dishonoring of bodies. In verse 25, there's another exchange. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Commentators say this should be the lie. 
They exchanged the truth about God for the lie of idolatry. And so God hands them over to their lusts and their dishonoring passions. And Paul's language language is sensual and sexual in nature because it's fitting for what we are about to see. Verse 26, Paul says, this is what it's come to. For this reason, here's that phrase again, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is what it has come to. This is what they want. God says in his judgment, fine, have it. God gives them up to do just that. Another exchange is made. This time the exchange is for the natural good gift of God in human gender and sexuality. For what? For dishonorable passions. Amongst women, verse 26, and then amongst men, verse 27. R. Kent Hughes says, other sins might be evil, but they are naturally evil. But this sin, Paul emphasizing the sin of homosexuality, shows at its very core an absolute inversion and depravity in this vivid illustration of what men and women are capable of, listen, when we reject God as our creator and we reject his design. And it takes us again all the way back to Genesis and this satanic perversion of what God had made good, the man for the woman leaving and cleaving one flesh and then be blessed, multiply, procreate, fill the earth, Satan, after the fall, manipulates and distorts sexual relations and procreation and turns it into perversion and mere sensuality. One commentator said this is the sacrament of the anti-religious. Our particular cultural moment begs us to stop here for a moment in the middle of what is so-called Pride Month, when this sin and others like it are not just present, but they're promoted and celebrated. And as the years go on, we should say the celebration is even mandated. And what does the church have to say in the face of this evil? What does the scripture say? You understand that our young people, these sitting on these front rows, other young people in the auditorium, inundated with this message every single day, everything they watch, everything they take in, as are we all. That love is love after all. And who are you to judge and who are you to say? It's understandable for the unbelieving world to look at these issues and reject God. That's what they're doing already. But it's another thing for Christians In the church, see, nobody likes the wrath of God. My daughter begging not to be spanked. (laughs) Suppressing the truth. See, it just comes natural. 
Understandable for an unbelieving world to do this, but what happens to Christians in so-called churches who attempt to accommodate to the culture? Listen to me. Who attempt to gloss over awkward conversations? Aren't we tempted in our day to compromise on this issue? Aren't we tempted in our day to maybe just ignore the issue? Pastors have gotten really good at that, ignoring the wrath of God, ignoring the whole homosexual LGBTQ thing altogether, not wanting to step on any toes. Or worse, we actually go on to approve it and celebrate it in our churches. You might hear people say, well, Paul only had a a pagan temple worship in mind. That's one of the arguments. That Paul was thinking only of temple prostitution in these pagan temples. That Paul was not thinking of a committed, monogamous, homosexual relationship. He had no concept of that, they say. Or they say, you've heard this one, well, that was Paul. Jesus never spoke about these issues. Listen, Paul was well-traveled. He was highly educated. He knew pagan philosophy. He knew pagan religion. He traveled all around the known world, the Mediterranean at that time. Paul certainly knew of several different types of homosexual practices among women and among men. And he, in this passage, intentionally uses broad language to to encompass all homosexual behavior. And he calls all of it sinful. Paul agrees with Jesus. Jesus actually did address this issue in Matthew 19 when Jesus agreed with Genesis 2. And Jesus said, this is what marriage is. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the two, male and female, husband and wife, shall become one flesh. You see, all such sin is contrary not just to God, But Paul says to nature itself. Nature itself bears witness that there's something wrong here. And in our disordering sinful minds and hearts, in our foolish heads and our stupid hearts, we exchange the truth about God for what we want. I want you to notice that Paul talks about desires here, not just the shameful act. The actual homosexual desires and tendencies. That's disordered too. So when Lady Gaga produced what had become at that time, like 10 years ago, the anthem of the LGBTQ crowd, born this way, one of the chief arguments that that was an acceptable lifestyle was, I didn't choose to feel this way, therefore it must be okay. My question for them is, how far does that go? How far do you take, quote-unquote, natural inclinations and natural desires and say, you can't tell me I can't feel that way, I just do, and I'm allowed to do it? How far do we go with that argument? It will go places that we can barely imagine right now, but with every passing day and every passing week and every passing year, we see it head more and more down that path. And they say, you can't argue that way, that's the slippery slope argument, that's a fallacy, you can't do that, but it's true. 
That will lead to dark places if we simply say, well, because I, because I feel this way, it must be okay. Paul targets the desires, too, as sinful. We as the church cannot placate, we cannot accommodate, we cannot celebrate this gross sinfulness. We must call it what it is. What the Apostle Paul said, what Scripture said, what God the Creator says, it is not sickness, it is not weakness, it is sin, and it is an assault upon Almighty God, and it must be repented of because it will lead to hell. I want to remind you this morning, members of First Baptist Church, in the middle of so-called Pride Month, you are under a covenant as members of First Baptist Church to address social issues in strict conformance to God's Word. That means in your personal, individual, daily, private lives. It means in your social media contacts and your social media postings. You as a member of First Baptist Church represent our church. You represent the gospel. You represent this Word. I also want to remind you this morning that because this is not a sickness that is up to doctors and psychiatrists and counselors to just cure, I want to remind you that because it is a sin, it's actually good news. Because there is one who came to save from sin. Alistair Begg said about our response to homosexuals or anyone in that spectrum of things. He said, we have two responses we cannot do. We cannot, on one hand, affirm, but on one hand, we cannot hate. And I think so often we feel like those are the only two choices. We have to affirm people in their sin, or we have to hate them. And that's certainly the way the world wants to peg Christians, isn't it? If you don't affirm us, you hate us. I want you to know this morning, there is a Savior who came to save from sin. And it is not loving or compassionate or merciful to not tell people about their sin and to not point them to a Savior. We've got to hold on for a second, don't we? That might be a particularly egregious example of disorder, but it is not the only example of disorder. Look at what Paul says beginning in verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, here's this God gave them up, there's that again, to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Well, God gave them up to the big thing over there. But now we come to this. And we have that rhythmic drumbeat. God gave them up now to this. These so-called respectable sins. The change of pace from the large issues like sexual sin and homosexuality, but Paul doesn't stop there. Now he focuses on those, quote, little sins of our daily actions, actions of the tongue, actions of the thought. Listen, sins that are no less a violation of God's law than the, quote, unquote, biggies. 
Maybe you made it through verses 26 through 27 and you sighed relief. Glad that's over with. That's not me. But then we come to these verses and we quickly see, no, they is me. This is me here too. We all find ourselves in this indictment. God gave them up. Not just the faceless them that we like to ridicule, especially during this month, but anyone found in violation of God's holy law, everyone including me and you. Tim Keller said God's wrath is revealed not only against the sins of them, but against our sins as well. Apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed to us, God's wrath is revealed to us as well. Did you find yourself there in that list, I wonder? Haughty, prideful, insolent, boastful, gossips, slanderers, heartless, ruthless, disobedient to parents. Do you find yourselves there in that list? Lastly, we see the sentence in verse 32 says we do, in fact, see ourselves there. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. In this mirror of God's holy, perfect law, we see ourselves. And we see the verdict, guilty. And we see the sentence, Paul says, death. As sinners, we actively find ourselves here in this horrific condition with pride at the heart of it, by the way. That same pride that caused Eve to fall into the temptation and then Adam who followed her, that same pride that turned us into idolaters, the same pride that causes sinful lusts and sinful passions, the same pride that causes us to stop our ears at the reading and the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. Our problem is much bigger than so-called mistakes and weakness. We are rebels against Almighty God, and we are ripe for His judgment. We must put ourselves in the crosshairs here. Is it painful? Yes. Is it humbling? Yes. Is it necessary? Yes. If we're going to understand the good part of the good news revealed in the gospel, we must understand the bad news that is revealed as well. In a society that wants to redefine or cancel the concept of sin altogether, with churches and pastors that want to accommodate and compromise on that issue, listen, it is not love, it is not tolerance, and it is not compassion to lie to people about sin. It is not love, it is not tolerance, it is not compassion to lie to people about God. To exchange the truth about God for a lie. You wouldn't want your doctors to do that. You wouldn't want the judge to do that. Why do we beg that our preachers do that? Unbelievers, listen to me today. You stand before God without excuse. And you say, but I didn't know. I'm not that bad. God will understand The truth of Scripture begs to differ. You can either accept it this morning or you can reject it. 
You can concoct a religion and a God of your own making to suit your passions. You can give yourself a a placebo of religion to soothe your heart and your mind until you stand before God in judgment. You can deny the truth of God, the truth of his law, the truth of sin, the truth of his wrath, and you can live in the lie. Or you can lay down your pride and your rebellion and your unbelief and come humbly to the foot of the cross for mercy. Truth today is that God's wrath is being revealed. God's wrath will be revealed on that day of judgment. And if you would dare to tell God this isn't fair, I would beg you to look in the mirror one more time. Go back to the list. Find yourself there and then ask God for justice. You don't want justice from God. You want mercy from God. And mercy comes with a condition that you acknowledge your need of mercy. Stop excusing your sin and your unbelief. Stop putting off repentance. Stop delaying obedience till tomorrow. Jesus says, Luke 9, 23, take up your cross now. Take up your cross now and follow me. Dan Doriani said, if we simply make mistakes, we need a coach, not a savior. But God has provided a savior because we are sinners. The revelation from heaven is that we are sinners under the wrath of almighty God. The revelation from heaven is this good news of a Savior who came for us. The revelation from heaven is righteousness to all those who will come to Christ in faith. Believers here this morning, I want you to remember who you were. Uh, Believers, I want you to remember, listen, who you could be. Apart from the love and the mercy of God. And then believers continually walk in repentance and worship and love towards God. Continually tell others about the love of a Savior who will reach down for them and save them from their sin. Plunge yourselves into this joy every single day. That you have not gotten from God what you deserve. But you have received mercy. The book of Revelation tells us that on that final day of judgment, many will run to the mountains and the rocks, and they will plead for the rocks to fall on them, to hide them from the wrath of God and from the Lamb. I want you to hear me this morning. There is only one refuge and one rock of safety. Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Then it says, Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There is one refuge from the judgment and the wrath of God, and it is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as the glory of God passed by Moses and, and Moses was hidden in the rock so as not to die from his exposure to the glory of God, we need a rock in which to hide ourselves. God in his mercy has given us such a refuge in the person and the work of our Savior Jesus Christ, the rock of ages. Let us hide ourselves in him. Oh God, our Father, we 
acknowledge heavy hearts at a heavy subject. God, I pray that as we feel weighed down by the burden of your law and the burden of your wrath, you would point us now to the good news of the gospel of Jesus, who by his death, by his own shedding of blood, and by his own abandonment, purchased a people for God. And so, God, as we think today as believers on the goodness of the gospel, help us to remember the burden of what we were and what we could be apart from Jesus and help us to rejoice in what we have in him. And God, for unbelievers in this room today, weighed down with the burden of the law and your judgment and your condemnation, God, point them now to the Savior, Jesus Christ who stands ready and willing to receive all who will come to him in faith and mercy, finding forgiveness at the foot of the cross. God, change us all today by the hearing of your word. Help us to leave here more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.